Tonight's show is brought to you by the Arkansas Air and Military Museum, located in Fayetteville, Arkansas, our supporters on Patreon, Bendetti Optics, and you, our listeners. Let's go look up pictures of Bell Star. Okay, she is glamorized as being like this beautiful, attractive, you know, bandit queen. She ugly. What is up, all of you wayward souls, and welcome back to the Wayward Stories podcast. Wayward Stories is the podcast where we tell the tales of our adventures in our wanderings and our wonderings. Well, I mean, actually, I guess I'm telling the stories of my wanderings and wonderings. Um, I don't know if any of you guys remember, any of y'all that have been around since the very beginning, it started out as like an idea um, to tell all of your stories. And you know what? We could still do that. You know, I think the the tagline used to be, I don't even remember the tagline, but basically I wanted you to email me any stories you had at mywaywardstory at gmail.com. If you had any awesome stories about, you know, what the wilderness and the backcountry, what it means to you, what it's done for you, you know, like this whole, this whole project is kind of, you know, was a platform for me to tell my story and in an attempt to uh, not let a bunch of bad things, you know, turn into a bad thing, you know, want to make something good out of it, use it as an example get people up off their butts and say, you know, go out there, find yourselves, find your passions, you know, live your lives. We only get so much time, right? That's kind of where this started. And the idea was to create a platform for you guys to tell stories, you know, and, um, you know, it just never really took off that way, which it's, it's a platform that works in a lot of genres, but you know, those genres are a lot more, um, popular than say outdoor genres like my own like most of them are true crime paranormal and people like to write in tell stories and i mean y'all you want to talk about capitalism at its finest insert yourself as a middleman storyteller y'all there's some podcasts out there that they're making buku bank literally doing nothing but what i do which is talk literally just talk they don't even write they don't even do their own research. They just get all their information from their listeners. Their listeners write in with their personal stories and they just read those stories and then they get paid for it. That's smart. It also seems like opportunistic and kind of crappy. So anyway, around it, I mean, I'm not going to hate on anyone for their hustle, but yeah, I mean, I don't know. I don't know. Anyway, I'm not going to hate on anyone for their hustle. That's smart business. That's smart business. But anyway, if any of you guys have stories, I'd still be willing to tell them like, heck, you got anything really cool like I mean we might just still tell a story like that it's kind of evolved into its own thing which is something that's been on my mind here lately actually you know I'm still wayward but I have a lot more of an idea of the path that I'm on right I started out not knowing what the heck I wanted to do like just following my heart trying to tell stories being who I am discovering who I am you know this big journey of self-discovery and it dawned on me I was talking to Jess about this um, on our last little adventure we went on, I was like, what am I actually doing with the project now? You know, it started out as a way for me to tell my story and to encourage others to get out and it's still doing that, but I've kind of found my path now. Like I'm not where I'm going, but I mean, I'm doing, I'm writing travel articles. That's something I wanted to do. I'm recording a podcast. That's something I wanted to do. I'm halfway over almost three quarters of the way through college now, which you can thank my geology professor for why there was a dark week two weeks ago and you've gone a month without a drop of wayward stories. I've been doing like 30 hours a week of homework for one class. I know more about glacial erratics than I ever wanted to know and will ever use in any of my future career to come. But anyway, I digress. Um, 
what we were talking about, like, I'm really on the path now and this is what I want to do. And, and everything's kind of looking like I'm heading in that direction, which is awesome. And that's like a victory in a, in a life I've had that hasn't had a lot of victories and has had a whole lot of obstacles. This is a really big deal. It's really cool. But where does that leave this project of the podcast? Because it had this one goal. And now that I've kind of found that path, what am I still doing with it? Anyway, that's for a future episode. Don't worry. We're not going to quit making the show. It's just, I need to figure out the direction with it. I mean, it's still here to hopefully, you know, inspire people to get out and live. Um, and that's what we're going to continue to do with it. We're going to keep trying to come up and tell you about cool little things and places like we're going to talk about tonight where you can get out and go explore the world and kind of get out there and figure out what you're all about. But anyway, I don't know. That's kind of an existential philosophical conversation that's probably for another episode. Um, anyway, we need to get on with tonight. Like we didn't even touch on housekeeping yet and we'll make the housekeeping short and sweet. Um, I got a new review. We got a new review from, I believe it is the um, dude next door, the next door dude, next door guy. Um, anyway, sorry, I'm not getting your name right. I actually wrote it down, but I didn't bring it here in front of me as I sat down tonight. But anyway, he said, thanks for the pretty sweet podcast. He usually listens to sports, but this is a nice diversion. And he gave us five stars. So dude next door, thanks for the pretty sweet review. Like, we need all of those we can get. And if any of you are out there listening and you have not yet reviewed the show, it is the biggest thing you could do to help keep us moving forward because it helps us in the algorithms and pushes us up the ranks where more people get to discover us. So if you ever want to, you know, do something nice for the old wayward son, go and leave a review wherever you're listening, which is no longer on Stitcher. By the way, there's another piece of housekeeping. If any of you guys are listening on Stitcher, you've only got a few days left if it hasn't already expired. I am a little late to the party on this episode drop. Stitcher like got rolled into, I don't know, maybe it was Amazon Music and one of those big companies and they just shut it down. So if you listened on Stitcher, sorry, bye-bye. You can find us on other platforms and please do so. Um, other than that, there's not a lot going on, you know. Share our stuff on Facebook, like, share, subscribe, all that stuff. That's housekeeping. Housekeeping's over. Let's move on. Um, what are we going to talk about tonight? Well, if you looked at the title of the episode before you started listening, we're going to talk about Robbers Cave State Park. And we do have a lot to talk about um, with that tonight because I'm from Southeast Oklahoma. Like every kid that grew up anywhere in Southeast Oklahoma went on field trips to Robbers Cave State Park. So and I've got like this kind of unique perspective on it as having gotten to go there when I was a child in field trip format, but then also as a young adult, when we were working on that was hidden histories and I was hosting that TV show and we went there, um, kind of related to the Hevener runestone, which is a whole different ball of wax that I would love to talk about, but doesn't really fit in here. I may be able to figure out how to shoehorn it someday. Cause it's something I would love to tell you guys about. Um, but we went there for a comparison of how um, carvings and rocks erode because there's a lot of rock carvings at Robbers Cave State Park. So I got to go there as a member of a media team, as a host of a show, and they gave us the, you know, full behind the stage tour. Like we got to see things that a lot of people don't get taken to. You know, the park rangers took us to stuff that they try real hard to protect. Um, so I got a little bit of a behind the scenes look. And then I also got to take my daughter back there this last year in the last six months. I think it was last fall and see it again from like a more adult perspective, taking a child there and trying to, you know, get her interested in all these things in the outdoors. So I've got a pretty varied perspective from multiple angles. So we have a lot we can talk about. And the reason it's going to be interesting to you, if you like to say hike or get out, 
is it is a really cool place to hike. It's in the beautiful Saint Bois, the Saint Boy Mountains, they call it here, but it is French and it's the Saint Bois, um, which I'll talk about a little bit in a minute. What that name is, why it said, why it is what it is, and how we all mispronounce it because nobody down here in Redneckville really cares much for French. Yeah. Anyway, um, we're gonna talk about that a little bit. We're gonna talk like the history and all that. Like it's gonna be fascinating because who doesn't love buried treasure, right? Like right there in the name, Robber's Cave, okay? It does, for any of you out of the state or out of the area that are not familiar with Robber's Cave, you know, the name precludes what this area just might be about. And it's a really, really neat place with some really, really cool history. Some of it true, some of it eh, maybe a little bit mythological. But we're going to go over all that tonight. And it may be more of a history lesson than some of you may care for because, well, I mean, here's the thing. What do you talk about a state park? You know, okay, you can camp there, you can hike there, you can bike there, you can quest there. If you have a horse, you can be an equestrian, you can go ride horses, you can cook hot dogs over a fire, you can boat in the lake, you can fish. How much can you really say over and over again about these state parks? What's interesting about state parks, and this is a part of the outline, and we're going to roll right into it right here. What is the value of a state park? The value of state parks, because a lot of people overlook them, a lot of people sleep on state parks. And I was one of them. Like, I'll be completely honest with you. I used to sleep on state parks. I was like, this is boring, man. I want to see Yosemite. I want to see the Great Smokies. I want to see Yellowstone and the bison. You know, like, I think a lot of people sleep on that. Let me, let me ask you this. If I asked you right now, how many national parks are there? I think the average person would probably say, I don't know, 15, 12, 15, 20. You know, I think the average person would go through their head and they'd go, okay, well, what are there? There's Rocky Mountain National Park, there's Yosemite, Yellowstone, there's there's Great Smoky Mountains. They would go through like a handful of them and, and probably get up to eight or 10 and be like thinking, okay, well, that's a national park. That's probably most of the national parks, maybe 15 or 20. Like there's like 480 or something. And I should know this because I'm interning with these guys and I've seen it multiple times, but it's upwards of 400 national parks or national monuments, places that are administered by the National Park Service. That's a lot of places. What are state parks? State parks are all the things that didn't quite make the cut. Okay, so that's why I think a lot of people sleep on it. Is they're like, well, if it wasn't good enough to be a national park, it's not good enough for me. Listen, Chad, Karen, you got to get off your high horse. Okay, you got to get off your high horse because here's the thing. The federal government can only fund so much stuff. And, and generally speaking, this is a generalization, but hang with me here. Generally speaking, most of what I see national parks um, administered sites to be, what they seem to be more than anything, are things of cultural importance, like high cultural importance, like indigenous sites or things that maybe had to do with integration of public schools, um, uh, civil rights movements. There's a lot of that. And then there's a lot of like the over the top majestic beauty, like a Yosemite, like a Yellowstone, like um all of these different places, Rocky Mountains, National Park, there's a lot of that. So it's mostly like majestic beauty, but then there's a whole lot of cultural stuff involved with it. But that leaves like this big swath of stuff that's some really cool things. That's just, it's too much for them to carry. Like, you know, they only spend so much of our taxpayer money, right? Like they can only get away with so much before we start firing up the torches and, and heading with our pitchforks up to Washington, which we ought to be doing now. But that's I'm not political. We're not doing politics. I hate politics. Moving on. Um, but there's only so much they can carry. Right. So the rest of it gets left to states. 
And states are looking around going, well, heck, we've got some really cool stuff. And this is really awesome. Like, I don't know. I think of like um, Rocky Hollow up in Turkey Run State Park in Indiana. That place was gorgeous. That was one of the coolest little valleys ever. But it's just not big enough to be a national park. Like it has this one amazing feature that you can hike through. But it's not on the scale of Yosemite, you know, a Yellowstone. It's just not big enough. There's not enough there to justify a national park. But that by no means diminishes the value of how cool the damn thing that's there is, right? State parks, I have found, after again, ashamedly, admittedly, sleeping on state parks forever, as I've gotten older, had a little budget, and over these last five years, as I, you know, told you guys very long time ago that I started going out and anywhere I could go on the weekends I didn't have my daughter in an act of self-preservation so that I didn't have to sit home alone depressed and thinking about all the horrible things that had happened right so I learned real fast okay I can't you can, there's only so many places you can go so you have to start going down the list I'm not a rich dude my name ain't Chad I don't get to go everywhere I want to go on mom and dad's money right so I have to go on my own money which is admittedly quite limited so i end up at a lot of uh, state parks and i found the state parks they have some of the most interesting and varied things that you can find across this nation and every state has a buttload of them and i would argue that there is just as much value in the litany of state parks that dot every state in this country as there are in all of the national parks. Like, I think it's, it, I think there's a lot of equal value there because maybe, you know, maybe it's a quantity versus quality thing. Like you could say, okay, look at Yosemite. The quality there is, you know, it's through the roof. The quality is amazing. You're going to see things you can't see anywhere else. Um, but there's only so much Yosemite and there's only so many of them. There's one, right? So what about the quantity of state parks? If is a hundred really awesome little things, does that equal one really big thing, like there's value in state parks is all I'm trying to say. And I'm not saying don't go to national parks. You really should. You need to see some of those things. It will expand your horizons. I mean, it'll get your little brain running around in circles. It's really cool. But state parks shouldn't be slept on. There's a ton of value in them and they preserve a whole lot of our cultural heritage and a whole lot of our ecological heritage. I mean, I don't want to call it heritage, but it is heritage. A lot of the ecological beauty things that we have. And anyway, Robbers Cave State Park in Oklahoma is one of those places that offers a little bit of cultural heritage, a little bit of folklore and some absolute natural beauty. And we're going to talk about it tonight and we're just going to go ahead and get started right into it. I say that after exactly 15 minutes on the nose of talking. However, all of it was on the nose, all of it. And only like 1.7 seconds was housekeeping. So Anyway, moving on. I'm going to give you guys the overview from the state of Oklahoma's um, website for Robbers Cave State Park. What to do schedule. Description of property and services. Robbers Cave State Park, one of Oklahoma's original seven parks, is located in the scenic hilly woodlands of the San Bois Mountains in southeastern Oklahoma. A favorite of repellers, cave explorers, equestrians, hikers, and outdoor lovers, the cave's secluded and rugged location and general proximity to the Texas and California roads and the old Butterfield stage line made it an ideal outlaw hideout for many years. Robbers Cave enjoys notoriety as a former hideout for outlaws and has been associated with such names as the Youngers, Frank and Jesse James, and of course, Bell Starr, who had a cabin 
20 miles to the north. Editor's note, part of that's fact. The rest of it, not so much. We'll talk about it later. Anyway, today, Romer's Cave State Park, an adjoining wildlife management area, offers visitors 8,246 acres of discovery and enjoyment. The park has caves, three lakes for fishing, a wildlife-filled wilderness area for hunting or nature viewing, numerous trails for hikers, mountain bikers, and horses, soundstone cliffs for climbing and rappelling, and a variety of other recreational activities. The park offers camping ranging from modern, semi-modern, and equestrian RV sites with hookups to regular tent sites to primitive camping along secluded trails. Other accommodations include a 20-room Bell Star Lodge, 19 one-bedroom cabins, seven two-bedroom cabins, and two group camp facilities. An amphitheater is available along with seven other outdoor pavilions. The park also offers two indoor community rooms. There are picnic tables, comfort stations, showers, boat ramps, a swimming beach, swimming pool with a bathhouse, playgrounds, a nature center with naturals programs, and exhibits around the park's facilities. I also know from a different place that it actually has yurts, and yurts are really cool to stay in. You should look into the yurts. They do have all of the things I just listed, and that's why I went through this little sheet of paper, is because it kind of gave you an idea of everything you can do there. For anything that you're really interested in, you can hike, you can mountain bike, you can rappel, you can rock climb, you can camp, you can fish, you can swim, like basically all the things you expect from a state park, you can expect at Robber's Cave. And it is an absolutely beautiful place. When I look at the map here in front of me, there are three lakes there. There's Lake Carlton, Lake Wayne Wallace, and then there's Coon Creek Lake. And y'all, there's a boatload, an absolute boatload of hiking and mountain biking to be done here. And I think those are probably two of the most popular things that are going on in the world these days um, out here in the wilderness, other than floating and and drinking yourself stupid on all of our rivers and leaving your trash on the banks. That seems to be the number one biggest, I don't know, pastime here in Arkansas now is everyone come from another state to our beautiful rivers and leave your beer cans on the banks. Anyway, um, there's a lot to do. At robber's cave so i'm going to give you guys a little bit and i'm going to try to skim some of the stuff that will bore you but i'm going to get to the more interesting stuff like the outlaws and all of that as quickly as possible but i'm going to give you a little bit of a background of robber's cave state park long before the arrival of european explorers to this area these mountains were the home and hunting ground for native american tribal groups in prehistoric times small family units lived along the rivers and streams of southeast oklahoma They hunted deer, bear, squirrel, and other wildlife. These indigenous peoples gathered nuts and berries and diverse plant species that are found in the pine hardwood forest. And that was like archaic to woodland period Native Americans. We're talking 6,000 BC up to 2,300, 400 CE, current era. From 900 to 1450, the area inhabitants were linked to the large ceremonial center at the Spiral Mounds, which is about 50 miles to the northeast of Robber's Cave. During this time, the Spiral Mound served as a cultural gateway, controlled, controlling trading and information between the bison-hunting Plains Indians and the agriculturally-based cultures of the Mississippi Valley. Around 1450, the Spiral culture greatly declined, drier conditions may have limited farming in this area, and likewise, droughts and forests were replaced with grasslands. These bison herds would have become more common in eastern Oklahoma, which in turn would have encouraged Plains Indians to begin to occupy this region. By the 1600s, the Osage and the Cadoan tribes used this region as seasonal home and hunting grounds. So that's like, what is that? 
six, eight thousand years of human history in probably 60 seconds. Now, in the late 1600s, the French fur trappers journeyed along Fushmaline Creek, which is a French word that means the Wicked Fork. It's the Wicked Fork of the Poto River, and I just love that name. It's so dark. It sounds like it should be like a movie or a book title. It should be a novel. And other streams in eastern Oklahoma. They were called the Couriers de Bois, or the Messengers of the Woods. These adventurers trapped beaver, otter, mink, and other fur-bearing animals. Some of the Frenchmen traded with the Caddo and Osage Indians who considered this area their hunting ground. It's been about 300 years since the Courier de Bois traveled these mountains. No gunfights or other incidents have been documented as occurring here at the cave. However, because of the cave's secluded location and general proximity to the Texas Road and the California Road, it is reasonable to assume that it was used as an outlaw hideout. Travelers on these roads were often victimized by robbers during the post-Civil War period. That's an important note there. It's reasonable to assume. That is a true statement. Reasonable to assume, not factually provable. Anyway, moving on. Bellstar, who reportedly welcomed outlaw guests to her home, lived in a cabin about 20 miles north of Robber's Cave. On February 2nd, 1889, Bellstar was murdered near the town of Whitefield, and her killer was never found. This is true. Bellstar did live on Younger Bend on the Arkansas River, just about 20 miles north of Robber's Cave, and she is buried there to this day. And I'm not positive you can still see her grave. I don't know if that's on private property, but it's near, or it was at one time, her home place. You can look into that. If you're interested in checking that out, you may be able to visit her grave. I don't want to say here for a fact that you can, but I know you used to could. Used to be. That's what we say here in Oklahoma. Used to could. You used to could do that. Some time ago, you could, if I want to speak <laughs> a little more scholarly, you could visit her grave. I don't know if that's still true. You might want to fact that, check that before you go about checking on it yourself. Anyway, now we get into the more modern days and how it is a state park. And we're going to talk about this for one second because I've talked about in the past that I want to like, explain more to you about the CCC, the New Deal, you know, the Civilian Conservation Corps and the Works Progress Administration. Well, Roberts Cave State Park is a product of the Civilian Conservation Corps through and through. Like it's, it's all about it. So first thing that happened was in this area, there was a camp, Tom Hill, that was established. It was a Boy Scout camp, but then it was rolled into after the Civilian Conservation Corps came in and built all of these really cool old stone structures. It became a state park. But anyway, this is a little bit of an overview of how the CCC worked. Robbers Cave is built upon this entire premise, basically. President Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal program in 1933 gave meaningful work to millions of unemployed Americans. Through the New Deal, roads, bridges, and dams were built. Forest and shelter belts were planted, and city, state, and national park facilities were constructed. The New Deal provided the impetus for the development of Oklahoma's first state parks. Robbers Cave State Park has the distinction of being one of those parks that was built during the New Deal era of the 1930s. One of the most important programs within Roosevelt's New Deal was the Civilian Conservation Corps. The chief purposes of the CCC were to conserve the nation's natural resources and to provide jobs and job training for the unemployed youth. Through the combined talents and hard work of National Park Service architects and the Civilian Conservation Corps enrollees, the U.S. Army, and their supervisors, a new or new parks were built throughout America. Roberts Cave State Park began as a Boy Scout camp and a state game preserve, and through the efforts of Carlton Weaver, 
a state political leader, this area was selected to receive a CCC camp. Park development began in 1935. And unlike most CC camps, which consisted of unmarried men, men between the ages of 18 and 25, the majority of CCC enrollees at Robbers Cave were World War I veterans. While the men of the CCC built the park's facilities, the dam that forms Lake Carlton was constructed by local men who worked for another New Deal program, the Works Progress Administration, or the WPA. Okay, that is the history of Robbers Cave State Park in just a few minutes time all the way from around 6000 bc which i would like to check on that i don't know if y'all pay attention to history and archaeology and all that but um those dates are getting pushed way the heck back in most of our states now because people figured out if you keep digging past what we expect to be there to see if there's anything else turns out there's other stuff which means there were people here before what we thought they were supposed to be it's a fascinating time it's a really exciting and fascinating time in archaeology, but this is not an archaeology podcast, so we are going to move on. Actually, we've run on pretty close to our break halfway through the show, um, and I don't have a really clear-cut stopping point tonight, so I think what I'm going to do is we're going to go ahead and cut and go to break now, and when we come back, we're going to talk about the folklore, the myths the legends that surround Robber's Cave and what you might find there. And I'm going to tell you all about my experiences down there so you can kind of get an idea of what you might expect if you go. And also give you a little bit of uh, inside info about outlaws, outlaw loot, and things of that nature in eastern Oklahoma. And maybe some stuff that a lot of people don't know about um, that I may have been at some point privy to the knowledge of through certain things that I used to get involved in. Anyway, we will talk about all of that after the break what is up all of you wayward souls i want to tell you guys about our newest sponsor bendetti optics a brand based right here in the good old us of a portland oregon to be exact and i bought my first pair of bendetti sunglasses about a year and a half ago and fell in love with them so much so that i got online and ordered a couple of more pair and when i did there was a small shipping snafu an order fulfillment snafu and i got on the phone gave him a call and guess what i get a call back from who one of the big men themselves, right there in Portland, from the top of the chain, have a great conversation, and we end up starting this great relationship we have. They more than made right, the little snafu that occurred, and I am now a huge proponent of them because I can tell you from personal experience, they are good people, and they are trying to compete with the big boys out there coming in at a price point of about $40, but using the exact same frame material, TR90, and the same polarization process as the big guys. As it turns out, something I think we are already probably knew in our hearts, when you buy big name sunglasses, you're buying a big name. Not necessarily any more quality than you can get somewhere else, like at Bendetti Optics. They have 29 different styles. They have multiple polarization options for whatever climate you happen to live in. And they back it up with like this lifetime guarantee that if your dog eats your sunglasses, it doesn't matter how you break them. Send it back in with a check to cover shipping and handling and you're golden. You got a new pair on the way. These guys are truly trying to do it right. And they have this philosophy that a really good pair of sunglasses should not cost you so much that you are afraid to wear them. And I think all of us outdoorsmen can relate to that. 
So if you guys, like me, are very practical and like to get more bang for your buck and wear some great looking sunglasses, check out BendettiOptics.com. That's B-E-N-D-E-T-T-I Optics.com. Or you can go over to Instagram slash Optics. And that I highly suggest, whether you buy a pair or not, just to check out the cutest pupper you will ever see modeling sunglasses. Once again, that's BendettiOptics.com. And make sure and let them know Wayward Stories sent you. And welcome back. Thank you guys for sticking around through our sponsor break. So let's just get right back into the show. Let's start with talking about the folklore. I gave you the historic overview. We do know that people were terrorized by bandits and outlaws in and around the Roberts Cave area on some of those roads. Like I said, the Texas Road and the California Road. For context, if you don't know what those are, those were very important roads. One of them that left um, Fort Smith, Arkansas. And traveled to Texas. It was a. It was basically the interstate highway of the day. It was like an old military road. It was a wagon road. I mean, we're talking about the eighteen early early eighteen hundreds, early eighteen hundreds. Okay, so it was wagon roads, but they were the main traveled thoroughfare thoroughfares that were you know blazed and created by the U.S. military back in those days. So over here in the Indian Territory, which is what. Oklahoma was at that time, at least post 1830. Okay. I'm not going to say that. These are things I'm supposed to know. Um, so that's a little bit embarrassing, but there's a lot that went on. There was like the pre-removal natives that, that saw the writing on the wall and started this way before Thomas Jefferson terrorized the hell out of everyone in the Southeast and made all those indigenous tribes move West. Um, and then there's the ones that came with the actual onvent of the Indian Removal Act. And there's differing time frames of when it was, you know, the Louisiana Purchase and then the Oklahoma Territory or the Indian Territory. Then it was the Oklahoma Territory. Then it became Oklahoma as a state. There's a lot of little intricacies there that probably don't interest you that much. But in that time frame, the federal government was trying to keep the peace between the removal of the southeastern tribes to the Oklahoma Territory, the Indian Territory at that time. And there were already natives here, mainly the Osage and the Caddo. Okay, and so they had friction because they were coming in and taking their resources, right? And that's actually something we might tie back into at the end of the show tonight, an interesting little psychological experiment that actually happened here at Robber's Cave. We may touch on that. But anyway, anytime you have competition for resources, there's going to be a problem. You know, the Osage were like, yo, bro, we were here first. And the Cherokee were like, dude, white daddy back there it made us come over here you know at a gunpoint what are we supposed to do and there were some problems and so the u.s military you know the u.s government so benevolently stepped in and was like let us father you allow us to bring the military to you know keep the peace with guns pointed at you you know it's a whole thing it's an ugly thing but it's it's a whole thing anyway the indian territory was not at the time able to be policed by the federal government so much so it was very lawless. There was this big window of time right there in the mid to late 1800s where basically this is where outlaws came. That is a fact because it was much harder for the long arm at the time. It was more like a Tyrannosaurus arm of the U.S. government to reach out and snag them, right? The long arm of the law was a lot shorter back then inside the Indian Territory because it wasn't essentially federally manageable area. So that was a problem, and it made it a lawless place that a lot of outlaws liked to hang out because it was easier to hide and not get caught. Anyway, what we don't know is if Jesse James and Bellstar were ever actually at Robber's Cave. 
it is, is that one thing I read said reasonable to assume they mayeth because we do know at least Bell Star was in this area. Jesse James is purported to have been in this area and most likely was at certain times, but there's like no absolute evidence of that. When you get back that far, it gets a little weird, gets a little sketchy. But anyway, I'm going to read you a couple of things here about these supposed, because they use these names. There were other outlaws that were faux show here, not necessarily at Robber's Cave, but here, faux show. But they used the big names to get everyone's attention right. And we're going to talk about that some here in just a few minutes. But in this Robbers Cave State Park High Points in History, it says, In 1874, Myra Bell Shirley, the notorious female outlaw called the Bandit Queen, became Bell Star after moving to the Cherokee Nation, Indian Territory, and marrying a Cherokee tribal member named Sam Star. She had a residence close to the Canadian River at a place called Younger's Bend near present-day Porham, Oklahoma. Yeah, I was wrong. I said the Arkansas River is Canadian River. Anyway, they're very close to each other right there. The confluence happened somewhere around where Kerr Lake is now. Anyway, she had a residence on the Canadian River. They called the place Younger's Bend, and it was near present-day Porham. The distance from Robber's Cave is about 30 miles. She and her men of questionable character were known for stealing horses and cattle. Stories have survived of the years of Bellstar using Robber's Cave as a hideout, as well as Jesse James and other outlaws. Along the Fushmaline Creek, a rugged passage was called the Robber's Trail. And here, between 1876 and 1889, we have Jesse James and company supposedly retreated to Robber's Cave on a return robbery trip from Mexico to hide, as well as recoup from a March winter storm. In 1889, Bell Star was assassinated, and she received two shotgun blasts in her back while riding her horse on her way home. No person was ever convicted of the crime. There have been many books written about the outlaws in Oklahoma, and particularly... I wanted to find, because I have some of these books. I used to treasure hunt. Yep, I used to. Used to. Long time ago. Used to good. I used to treasure hunt. And it was a lot of fun. And I found some really cool stuff. I have a whole box of incredibly cool artifacts from Civil War on forward. Um, never did find any big treasures, but I never was after that. I've always been a history nerd, and I was always out there looking for vestiges of history, of which I found many. Um, but I want to read out of these books that have some of these stories. And this will actually give you an idea about maybe the veracity of anything that has to do with outlaws at Robber's Cave. In A Guide to Treasure in Oklahoma, Volume 2, by Mary L. Carson, I believe the printing was 1986, at least this print, 1987, by Carson Enterprises. In... On page 224, it states, The outlaw queen, Bellstar, reportedly cached part of her loot in one secret chamber at Robber's Cave, or nearby where, a huge boulders, or nearby where huge boulders formed a labyrinth of long, narrow tunnels. And that's it. That's it, as far as Bellstar is concerned. How about Jesse James? Outlaw loot of Jesse James is buried on the Samboy Mountain land in or near Robber's Cave State Park near Wilberton. That's it. That's everything. That's everything about Robber's Cave in this book that was researched specifically for the purpose. This is this is one of three volumes. That's all there is about Robber's Cave. That tells you something. As a historian, I have to point that out. That tells you something. But there is more to the story, as it were. Um, here's the thing, okay? There was probably outlaws, definitely probably outlaws at Robber's Cave. More At some point, someone hit out there, for sure. Um, Bell Star, Jesse James, maybe. 
Maybe. Bell Star, I feel like, has a better chance than Jesse James. Um, because here's the thing about Outlaws. Number one, I'm sure you've all heard of Bell Star. I mean, most people, I think, even internationally, someone somewhere, you, you've probably heard of Bell Star. Super famous, known as the Bandit Queen. Little known fact about her that you might find very interesting. The only crime she was ever convicted of was stealing a horse. And she did time one year in Detroit, Michigan. And then she was set free. And she was never caught or convicted for any other crimes. She has this persona of this rootin' tootin', hell-raisin' bandit queen. She might have been that. But we have no evidence that states that she does. Um, Do you know where that persona came from? Would you like to know? Somebody... Have you ever heard of a dime store comic book or a dime store novel? Have you ever heard of those? Those are a real thing that happened back in the day. And someone caught on to this idea of Bellstar and they created this persona of her. And it was called, I believe it was the Bandit Queen, but they called her Bella Star. Yes, that's right. It was Bella Star. So it was based loosely, very loosely on her. And that's where she became the rootin' tootin' lawless, hell-raising, clever, beautiful, like y'all, pictures, go look up pictures of Bellstar. Okay, she is glamorized as being like this beautiful, attractive, you know, bandit queen, she ugly. Like, no offense, Bell, or any of your descendants, she ugly. She was not beautiful. That right there, factually false. I mean, I guess it's not necessarily objective. It is kind of subjective. People have taste, right? But you go look, you'll see what I'm saying. She doesn't fit what your brain said she was supposed to look like. Go look at pictures of her. She's nowhere near what your brain said she should look like. So that right there is false. We don't know that she was all that crazy and lawless. We don't know that. She was only ever like arrested and convicted and tried for one thing. And it was horse theft. We don't know anything else about her. And Jesse James, here's an interesting little tidbit about Jesse James. He was most likely a bunch of people. Nobody... I mean, we know who the original, the one guy, we have a couple of pictures of the Jesse James, but all of the many things that are attributed to him over all those years, there is a large contingent of historians that think that Jesse James, the, the, I don't want to call it the facade, but kind of the facade, the picture that we have in our minds of Jesse James was likely a great many bad guys who wherever they were, they just said, I'm Jesse James. And that's actually based on the idea that that's what a lot of historians believe Robin Hood was, that he wasn't a single guy with a band of merry men over there kicking it in Sherwood. He very likely was a whole lot of people that were just giving that name and going about, you know, robbing people, you know, rich people and kind of doing that whole rob from the rich, give to the poor. But also, and that's like Jesse James was, you know, well known for that. Everyone loved Jesse James because, you know, to heck with the federal government and he was taken from them and given back to the people, which there's, there's a certain allure to that. Right. But a whole lot of that may not very well be true. A lot of people were just doing really bad stuff. And what we do know about Jesse James is he was a murderer. So be careful with who you glamorize. Um, because we do know he was not a very good dude. Okay. He might be super cool to kind of have this fantastic idea, especially kids back in the forties and fifties, the lone ranger, you know, all that kind of stuff. But he was like, in reality, not a good dude. And he murdered people and took things from people that wasn't his, you know. He was a pretty bad dude overall. But we don't have any evidence that he was ever at at um, Robber's Cave. There are many stories 
throughout eastern Oklahoma, which is amazing to me. There's only like really one about Robert's Cave that may be kind of telling in itself, too, because there are many stories of him throughout eastern Oklahoma, but they are all dubious. You know, you don't have pictures of that. How do you know for sure? Because one thing I can tell you that I do know as a historian, everyone wants to tie themselves to something really cool. Think about it. How many people want to be like, oh, Kevin Bacon's like my third cousin. Everyone, like everyone, everyone wants to be tied somehow connected to something that they think is very, very cool and that people will like. Back in the day, there wasn't a lot of fact checking. You know, there weren't CCTV cameras everywhere. Who knows where the hell Jesse James is at any given point. And everyone and their dog has a story about how their great grandma used to, you know, Jesse James came up to the house late at night and he was camped down by James Fort Creek. And, you know, she loaned him a skillet and he cooked his dinner and brought it back and gave her, you know, hundred gold pieces for the effort. You know, everyone's got that story, which means that it's not likely that it happened in most of those cases. It might have happened in a few, but most likely not in all of them. Anyway, that's actually turned into a real history lesson. And, you know, for any of you that are interested, hey, fun times for us. But for any of you that are here for hiking and stuff, yeah, that's probably not so much. But something that I kind of started to allude to and didn't go all the way into back in the um, intro is where I was talking about what's the value of state parks. Well, they preserve something, a little bit of cultural heritage. And, you know, when I go to talk about a state park and tell you guys why you should be interested, why you want to go there, like I said, I can spend five minutes telling you about how it looks, what you can do there, and then where the hell else do I go with it? Where else do I go from there? There's not a lot of places to go. I can only sit here and say it's so beautiful so many times before A, it loses its punch, and B, it's just like, okay, I'm not going to listen to you say it's beautiful for an hour. Entertain me. Well, that's what we're doing tonight. The value of state parks is what it is they're preserving and why they're there. And places like Robber's Cave that have a story and a history and a folklore and a mythology behind them like this. And do remember, for as much as I'm trying to be realistic with you guys about history, there are often seeds of truth, a grain of truth somewhere that starts a legend, that starts a myth, that starts folklore. Um... So I think that's the value of Robert's Cave is it is expansive. I just told you, 8,800 acres, whatever, hiking, biking, you name it. If it can be done in the outdoors, it can. It, you're doing it there except for like skiing, you know, snowboarding. You're not doing that there. But the basic stuff you expect everywhere, you can do there. And it's an awesome place. It's a beautiful place to camp. But what else do I say about it? I'm going to tell you the stories and why it's interesting. And that's what we're doing right now. Anyway, so I just told you a little bit about the truth about the outlaws. And it's it's a really interesting place. What is Sands Bois? The Sandboy Mountains, right? If you look it up, it's S-A-N-S. Well, actually, they've dropped the S at this point. But it's S-A-N, um, S-A-N-B-O-I-S. It's not Sandboys, which is what everyone in this neck of the woods calls it. It is Sandbois, which means without trees. It was named by the French couriers. Um, and it basically just means without trees. And apparently there was somewhere down there that didn't have a lot of trees. I think it was originally named, um, a creek was named that. And then the mountains got the name from the creek. Cause I can assure you the mountains are heavily forested. Um, and it's hard to think of a way in which they might not have been forested as little as 300 years ago and be what they are now. So that's a little bit questionable, but that's what it means. And it, that's always been interesting to me. 
like the French words here. Like it, we have some weird names in Oklahoma. I've always loved it. We have a lot of indigenous indigenous names, which are are strange to our ears and to our eyes as we tried to read them. Um, but we get that with a lot of French too, because the French did. The trappers came through here. This was a part of um, French Louisiana before we purchased you know, Louisiana, the Louisiana purchase, right? So we have like potois, which is poto, you know, but it's potois, which just means like a post, like a, like a trading post. Then we have a place called Choteau, which was named after a French trader. And I can't remember his first name, but I think it was Pierre Choteau. And then we have the Fushmaline River, the Wicked Fork. We have the Sansbois Mountains and we have Bois d'Arc trees, which you may have heard of them. They're horse apple trees. People use horse apples for a lot of things. Don't ever eat one. You know, that name is a little bit misleading. Don't ever eat a horse apple. They will not good. It's not good. Um, but it's their Bois d'Arc, which is what the French called this because that is what the Osage that lived in the area made their bows out of. It means um, curved wood, essentially. It's how they made their bows out of because they were super, the limbs were super limber. They were like some of the best, like apparently, and around here, it's not Bois d'Arc. They call them Bodark, of course. It's the Bodark tree. But anyway, they are extremely, extremely pliable when they are like um, the limbs of them. And they're very, very durable. Like they're an extreme hardwood, a super dense hardwood that people use for like fence posts and bridge pilings. They were like, it's like one of the densest woods you can get your hands on. There are examples of the Bois d'Arc tree where they've been made into like fence posts for like barbed wire fences where the post outlived the freaking metal barbed wire. It rotted off and the post is still there. Okay. Bodark, Bois d'Arc wood is like very, very utilitarian and very useful. And I've always loved the, the idea that it was like, it's the Osage. They called it also Osage orange. Um, because the Osage used it to make their bows out of. And I just think that's super cool. But anyway, we have those. But you have all these names. No one pronounces them right. Same thing in St. Louis. Don't get down on us Southerners. You Midwesterners are no better about Bellefontaine, Joliet. Like, no, that's not how it's pronounced. Anyway, anyway, a lot of people don't expect that in Eastern Oklahoma, all of our French names. There are a great many of them. But anyway, so at Robber's Cave, I've been there many times. Like I said, I went there as a young child. Like, you know, everyone in this area, you've, you've been, you've gone on a field trip and it's super cool. There's a lot of really neat hiking, but right around the cave, like this area is expansive. The actual wilderness area and the state park stuff's really big, 8,800 acres, whatever I said earlier, it's a big number. Um, there's a lot of hiking there, but in and around the cave itself, it's a very small animal, you know, small area. There's this like huge outcropping and it's really, really cool because there are, there are little caves all through it. You can walk through some of the caves. There's one right at the very entrance before you go up to the actual entrance of Robber's Cave itself that it's real narrow and long and you can go way back in there. Um, and if you're small enough, I think you can go all the way through and it's just really neat. It's a really neat geologic area. There are places here that fit a lot of criteria. Okay. Like number one, there's an area where there's like some really steep walls within this little canyon area and these rocks that is like a natural stone corral. And the thought is that the outlaws would have stolen their horses and they could have kept them quite easily in that corral. There's only a small area where they would have had to like partition it off to keep the horses and they didn't have to build a lot. Number two, it's a natural high point on the landscape and it's heavily wooded. There's a ton of little crags and outcroppings and overhangs and caves where they could hide, they could run, they could scurry around like little rats or whatever. It would be hard to apprehend someone 
or even find someone that was hiding at Robber's Cave. And it's super fun today to explore because you can crawl all over that place. By the way, if you take your children there, be very careful because, you know, like a lot of places, they don't put in a lot of railing because you got to keep the natural beauty and you don't want to destroy the natural ecology and they kind of leave it to humans, which are doing a terrible job in the last decade or two of being intelligent, but they kind of leave it to humans to be intelligent and not let your children dive off a 30 foot bluffs, right? So if you go understand that it's not like they haven't, haven't put twist off caps on everything. Essentially, they haven't put stickers on everything that says this is, you know, laundry detergent. Please do not eat this. It is what it is. Be careful if you take your kids there. Because kids, understandably, aren't thinking about the fact that a 30-foot drop will kill them. They're thinking about freaking Batman can do it. Why can't I? So, like, be the actual grown-up and use the actual brain in your head. And be careful with your children if you take them there. But it is a really cool place. You can go back in the original cave. Which there's not, it doesn't go back very far anymore because back in the 1930s or 40s, you know, people, being people, thought, well, if the treasure's in here, we'll blow it up with dynamite. And what they did is they collapsed the cave on itself, a good portion of it. There are still caves you can crawl around in in the area, small ones. But the cave itself that was what was considered the cave where the robbers would have hid, um, it is collapsed on itself, but it's still awesome to see. You still need to go see it. Like, it still goes back a little ways. Um, But it's more like a huge, deep bluff shelter than it is an actual cave at this point. But it's super awesome to see. And you can climb all over it. And for any of you that are interested in history, there's a lot of fun stuff to look at. Like, graffiti, so to speak. And modern-day graffiti, bad, right? But there ain't nothing we can do about graffiti that's 120 years old or 110 years old. So, you know, you can have a little game and start seeing how far back you can find the oldest carving and go and look at how ornate they are. They're like beautiful, deep etched carvings. And like, I'm not advocating that you should like deface things. Okay. Especially not in state and national parks anywhere. You should never deface anything anywhere. What am I saying? Um, I just, I say, especially cause you'll do time and have huge fines if you do it in those parks, but don't do it anywhere. But like, it's kind of fun to look around and look at all these names. Cause you're looking at these names and like your brain does this weird little thing. It's like that name of that person was sketch, you know, etched in there in 1910. Number one, look how good the penmanship is carved into this rock. And number two, and that guy lived a whole life. He probably had kids who knows, you know I mean? Who knows? He might've got hit by a beer truck the next day, but most likely he lived a whole life did a whole thing and has maybe descendants that are kids and grandkids. Who know me? You know, generations have passed. And like, it's just interesting to think his name still standing there. And I don't know. It's, it's human residue. I like to call that human residue. And it's just really interesting. And there's a lot of it there. Some really interesting stuff, but you can climb around and you can really let your imagination run wild with the old outlaws of the old West and how they could have hid there. You can, you can read all the interpretive, Um, information, or you can get onto one of the tours when they do a guided tour with some of the park staff. You just have to look that up for yourself when they're doing those and how to get involved in them. But it's a really super cool place. Just the actual cave itself, all the other state park amenities all still exist. You can do anything you want there, but exploring the cave itself, which is the namesake for the park, it is a really neat experience and it will jog your smarticle particles and get you to thinking about things. And so I'm going to tell you about here, before we end the episode, I'm going to tell you a little bit about when I went there with Hidden Histories, because this, it gets a little bit interesting, okay? 
Number one, I went there with a TV show. And I've talked about that a little bit before on different episodes. But when you go anywhere with a big A freaking production camera and say, hey, we're making a TV show and it airs in Europe, you know, and it, that was a true statement. But when you tell people that, they roll out the red carpet. I mean, they bring out the big dogs. They get the big guns out. And they're like, well, ha-ha, let us show you around. It was pretty cool. We got a lot of red carpet treatment for some little no-account TV show that aired on public access in, like, Eastern Europe. And, like, we're, like, over there in the Soviet bloc. And, but people didn't care. You got TV camera. You got TV show. Let's be on TV, baby. And so we got a lot of really cool treatment. We got access to a lot of things in a lot of places that people don't get access to. And this particular show that I was working on was Hidden Histories. And on this one, we went there not because of Robert's Cave. Specifically, we went there because we were doing a show on the Hevener Runestone, which I mentioned earlier. But we were there to kind of compare, you know, granite versus sandstone and how, like, markings in rocks weather over time because we have a lot of rocks at Robber's Cave that have dates on them and we can see a weathering over 100 years, 150 years, whatever. And it was all about that. I'm not going to bore you with all that. But what we did get is the all-access tour all over that cave, all over the bluffs, all over the outcroppings. And these park rangers showed us some really awesome stuff. And as I was earlier kind of bagging on the idea that maybe my rebel Shirley bell star didn't hang out there or jesse james i'm about to tell you something that's really interesting there are carvings there at robber's cave that are not necessarily easily accessible they're on very high points they're on bluff lines where it'd be a great person place for someone to sit and watch lookout that not everyone gets to and that they don't point out to everyone because they want to protect them but there is absolutely a carving on top of one of those little bluff lines and it is a horse with a star behind it, which is a way that Belle Star was known to leave her mark, so to speak. And I saw that with my own eyes, and that's very cool. So there is a decent chance she may have been there. Now, there's also the possibility it could be a historical fake, a historical forgery. I've run across those in my budding career as a historian where people were faking stuff almost after it initially happened. Someone was famous enough at the time, they were already pumping stuff out to try to make money off of or whatever. It is possible it could be a historical forgery, but that just seems highly unlikely to me. There is a carving of a horse and a star. It is something that you can task yourself with possibly trying to find there. I don't know if the rangers would show you if you ask them, but you can try to find it because I can assure you it's there. Another thing, and I found this, and this just like tickled me, man. I love this. See, at the time, I was really into treasure hunting. Like, I have all these books, y'all. I've got all these books about treasure in this local area and treasure hunting and all this stuff. And it, for me, it was never really about treasure. It's about getting your hands on a tangible piece of history that no one's touched. Now I get to do it with a little bit of archaeology here and there. But this is kind of like layperson archaeology. I never expected to hit a freaking gold cache. That's not what I was there for. I wanted to find pieces of history, right? Especially Civil War stuff. Super cool stuff. But I was into that. I read a lot of books. I've always been the research guy. If I get interested in something, I'm going to read all about it, right? That's just what I do. So I had all this knowledge about how Jesse James did sign his name. And there's one way particularly that Jesse James signed his name. They call it the double fish hook. And it's like, I mean, it's kind of what the name implies. It's like if you have a fish hook facing that's a J, there's one like right behind it in a mirror, kind of a obverse type of of it. It's just a J and a J, but they kind of cross away from each other. Um, it's kind of like a mirror image. That was one way Jesse James 
left his initials about. And as we were talking to these park rangers, they were showing us a place. We actually picked this one big boulder that had a bunch of initials carved on it to kind of get an idea of the of the erosion rates of of like sandstone, particularly um, for carvings. And as I'm looking down these initials, they were going right down the center of the boulder and they were like symmetrical as if they were all carved at the same time. And I don't remember the first set, five sets or whatever, but it was, you know, first initial, last initial, first initial, last initial, all the way down. The very bottom one was the double fish hooks. And I looked at that park ranger and at that interpreter and I said, Hey, these two at the bottom, what do you make of that? Do you know who do y'all have any idea? I was kind of trying to set them up a little bit to get this information. So do you have any idea who might've carved all these? Do these initials, you know, match any famous anyone's or is this, do you think just maybe people that were here when it was camp Tom Hill or whatever? He's like, we don't really know. You know, we really don't know. And I said, well, you see these two at the bottom. Did you know that this is a way that Jesse James carved his initials and left them? They call it the double fish hooks. And he saw that and he's like, I have never noticed that. And it was just really cool. He was like, oh my gosh, I've got to do a little bit of research on my own. And I don't know if he did. I don't know what they ever did with that, but pretty sure, maybe, maybe. And I mean, it's not impossible to say that other people with, you know, the first and last name that both start with a J might have signed their name with double fish hooks. I mean, I guess it's possible, but Jesse James was known to have and and known for a fact to have. Um, So you never know. Never know. Maybe, maybe. He really was there. We also found some other things. Like, I'll show you this for you guys watching on YouTube. Do you see this rubbing I'm holding up to the camera? For any of you that aren't looking, we took a rubbing of an inscription that we found there at Robber's Cave that this, the park ranger, had never seen either. And if this isn't bits and pieces of some kind of a map to something, I don't know what is. There's a straight line with a hook at the end that ends in an arrow point, like this way. And it has 1680 above it, out to the right. It says F and L with a line underneath it. This is carved into rock. Okay, this, you know, it's not written in a tree. This is carved into rock. And below it, there's a long straight arrow that has two fletchings at the bottom, one fletching just below it, and then two strange appendages toward the top, and then the actual point that would be the arrow. And there's a singular dot right at the very tip. And both of those arrows actually converge at that dot. And from what I do know about the iconography of people who used to bury and hide things back in the day, if that's not a piece of a map to something, I don't know what is. And there's a whole lot of those kinds of carvings all over Southeast Oklahoma. A lot of them are documented in a book called In Plain Sight by Gloria Farley. And a lot of it is stuff that she interprets one way or another. But I assure you, as someone who knows a little bit of something about some of the different signs and symbols people used for this kind of stuff, a lot of what she has in there was more historic era stuff that was carved into rock to help people find their way to whatever it was it might have been they wanted to find their way to. Could have been a spring, could have been some buried loot, who knows. So Robert's Cave, very likely, may have some very interesting stuff there to see. Um, or it definitely has interesting stuff to see, but it may have some things there to find. Because guess what I found out today? I did a little googly. Because, like, metal detectors are so much fun, but it's impossible to get to use them anywhere unless you have access to private property. Like, more or less. And in a lot of beaches, you can do it, but I don't live near a beach, right? Bought one a few months ago to get my daughter interested. But, like, there's a lot of laws 
you know, I really looked into it because I don't want to get us in trouble in like national park, not definitely not national parks, but like national forest lands, which is where we always used to metal detect. Apparently that's not super legal. Okay. Yeah. Statute of limitations has probably run out. Okay. So I don't really feel that bad and I don't think the government's that concerned about it. But, um, yeah, there's a lot of places you can't, it's a lot shorter list of places you can than places you can't much longer list of places you can't. Well, I found out today, as I was reading through some different forums, getting prepared for this episode, you can freaking metal detect in Robbers Cave State Park, which blows my mind. Because on a federal level, anywhere that there's possible history in the ground, you're not allowed to metal detect, which is what screws you on like the National Forest. Okay, anything historic that could be of value to the historic record, you're not allowed to metal detect. Well, apparently in Oklahoma, you can metal detect in state parks. All you have to do is go to the park office and fill out a permit form and you can go metal tech to your heart's content. And that's kind of a neat little segue because I didn't know this and that I'm going to take my daughter back to do that. That's so freaking awesome. And I love it. But that's a good little segue to me for me to tell you a little story about something I happen to know a little insider information. I happened to be at a place one time several years ago, back when I was into metal detecting, um, it was a place here locally where they sold metal detectors and all these different things. And I happened to be present to catch wind and see something going on that was, you know what? Freaking forget all the beating around the bush. I was there while somebody was fencing stuff that they dug out of the ground near robber's cave, something very important, something very valuable. And they were there to fence it and they were getting hooked up with the proper people to buy it. I was there for that. Not because I was involved. It was happenstance that I happened to be there. And I guess I'm a pretty trustable looking guy because those guys, there always really like me. And I got to witness a whole boatload of this. And somebody was there with some really significant things they found in and or around Robbers Cave State Park, and they're trying to get it fenced because it was the kind of stuff that the government would say, no, we get to keep that. Sorry. You know, you put in 30 years of work decoding all these maps. Thanks, bro. That's mine now, which I agree is kind of BS. I think as a budding archaeologist of a sort, definitely an anthropologist, a historian to the core, I would love to see governments work a little more hand in hand with the people that are doing the work they won't do. And won't finance and going out and finding things of extreme significance. They've created a scenario where for anyone except for the most pure hearted of historian, that's not after the money. They've created a scenario where no one's there's been probably things found on this planet that will never see the light of day that would rewrite stuff that would rewrite history books that we'll never know because it's in a private collection because it was sold by a private party because if the government caught wind of it, they would have confiscated it. Maybe they should, maybe they shouldn't. It's an argument for a different podcast and a different day. But I'm just saying the setup as it is means that no one's ever going to turn that in unless they have a very pure heart. I'd like to think I'm one of those people because I really do love the history. If I freaking found something that had Jesse James name freaking carved right into it without a doubt, I would probably report that because to me, it's that significant. I really do think history is that interesting and that important personally. I really do. But if the governments would work a little bit harder to split up some of the profits of this thing or, or come up with something that compensates the people that put in the time and effort, there might be less of the black market crap, which I don't agree with the black market. I'm just saying, 
But I happened to be there when some really significant hordes of coins and other artifacts were being fenced um, that came from Robert's Cave area. There is stuff there to be found, and apparently you can get a permit to dig for it. And I just thought that was super cool. Anyway, we're kind of getting towards the end of the show. Um, I took my daughter there recently, and we had a blast, y'all. I want to kind of wrap up with that. She had such a great time um, dig, climbing around. And she loved, what was crazy to me is the two things she loved the most was seeing all the names that were carved into the rocks and all the dates and stuff. She loved that. And then she loved feeding bread to the ducks because the ducks were crazy. Y'all, the ducks were psycho. They were coming at her, and she it was hilarious. She'd run out there with a piece of bread and throw it at the ducks, and they would be like, and they'd come running right at her, wings flapping, feathers flying, and she would take off running, squealing and laughing, and we went through this for like an hour. I mean, I ran out of bread. I had a, was there with half a loaf of bread, right? We go down, we make our lunch. We went through a half a loaf of bread. They were like half an hour watching her freaking be tortured and torment these ducks. And it was one of the funniest things ever, but we had a great time. Like you're right there by this really big dam that you can get some really cool pictures of. You can sit there and hang your legs off the edge and look at this big kind of curved dam that goes out linearly. You can hang out, throw friggin' bread to the ducks. You can go up and crawl all over robber's cave. It's a great place to take your family. It's a great place for you history nerds. Like it's a great place for mountain biking, hiking, climbing, rappelling. Like it really does have a lot to offer. It is one of Oklahoma's best state parks, in my opinion. And I've been to a lot of them and I love those state parks. It's a really, really cool state park that everyone I think should give a little bit of a nod to and think about spending. You could spend a weekend there. If you're the campy kinds that like to go spend your weekend somewhere where you can swim in the lake, maybe do a little hiking, grill up your hot dogs, your burgers. It's a great state park. Y'all, there's more to do there. And so many different accommodation styles, you know, from yurts to your RVs to your tent camps to whatever, to the cabins, to the, the, I want to go stay now. I want to go stay at the Bell Star Lodge or whatever. I want to go check that out. I bet that's really cool. There's a lot of history there. There's a lot of recreation there. And it is in a really, really beautiful part of the Washita Mountains of Southeast Oklahoma. You guys should definitely get out there. You could easily spend a long, long weekend out there and have a good time. And you could just spend an afternoon exploring the cave if that's all you're there for. Anyway, that is my history lesson. The cultural background. The interesting things about Robbers Cave State Park and everything you can do therein. And a little bit of personal background to boot. Um, but we're way on beyond the end of tonight's show, so I need to wrap this up. Oh, dang, y'all. I forgot about the psychological experiment. You know what? I'm going to touch on it in like two minutes' time. This is really interesting. So they did a, a psychologist way back in the day, before there was like things such as ethics and medicine and so forth, they did a psychological experiment where they took like two groups of middle-class Protestant white boys. Okay. They, of course, back in that day, that was considered the average kid, you know, not a broken family, not of any other skin color, bunch of white kids with both parents from like a Protestant background. But they took these kids, they, they were essentially trying to make a control where they took these kids and they have them up. The other group, one group didn't know about the other group and they took them out here and they split them up and they, they were testing realistic conflict theory and it had really interesting results and, and it, I, I wanted to touch on this because this happened at robbers cave state park but also because it goes back to what i say at the end of every every episode 
If you guys listen all the way to the end, you always hear me say, you know, what the heck ever, go out there, find something to do. And then I say, and don't forget to be good to each other. And that's because we're not good to each other. As humans, we're not good to each other. We are jerks. We are. We're vain, selfish jerks in general. I will make that broad blanket statement. I will die on that hill. Um, You know, I need my little table and my sign and a cup of coffee. It just says, change my mind. Anyway, they did this psychological experiment that touches on that specifically. And the whole idea was, okay, if we take these kids, if we throw into the mix, when we bring these two groups together and they learn of each other's existence, they're going to, you know, end up doing what they do. Let's see what they do. Well, they each chose names. There were the Eagles and the Rattlers. And anyway, as it turns out, when they brought them together, they like hated each other. Like, as long as there was competition for resources, and I don't remember what the resources was. If you want to look it up, you can read the abstract. It's an interesting abstract. Um, and if you've got institutional access, like if you go to college or you have, if you have an EDU email address, you can probably get institutional access to the whole paper. It's a big paper. It's an interesting paper, but the abstract alone will tell you the ins and outs of it. And it's by a guy named Saul McLeod, PhD. And it was realistic conflict theory. And it, there's a lot said about it because this was done at a time before ethics were a big part of, you know, psychology, psychological practice and medical practice, etc. Um, and there wasn't anything incredibly unethical about this. Like some of the freaking things that psychologists did that ended up actually creating the need for a code of conduct and ethics. There wasn't anything extremely unethical about it, except that they just didn't know they were being tested on stuff, but, you know, put through certain things, but they weren't like, being held hostage or anything. There was nothing torture wasn't happening. But anyway, it turns out that they just hated each other. As long as there was competition, it didn't, they were all the same color. You know, like, what do we do? We divide up by race, religion, creed, blah, blah, blah. Well, they were all the same color and they still ended up hating each other. And that's interesting because that goes right along with history. Like the, you know, Irish Protestants and Catholics, they hated each other. They were all Irish. They're all the same people. We will always find ways to divide ourselves to be mad at someone else. And as long as these two groups had competition for resources, and this is interesting, they like there was an increased incidences of calling each other more derogatory names. There was more incidences of like pulling pranks and doing, you know, vandalistic type of things to the other's group, the other's camp, the other's flag. But when they tried to de-escalate by creating a quote-unquote crisis where the groups had to work together, they actually saw these groups come back together and start to work together and start to be friendly to each other. And a lot of the prejudices start to drop away when they needed each other, when it wasn't one against the other, but both had to work together to ensure whatever outcome it was they were after. It's just really interesting, but it was a study that you should look into, or at least give a little bit of thought to about how we are as humans and how it is in our genetics, apparently in our code, to be crappy to each other and other people and how it is that it doesn't have to be that way because all it takes is a little bit of mm, what's the word I want to use here. Being intentional, introspective, be a little bit intentional with your thoughts and how you treat other people. Anyway, it was just a cool tie in. It's something that's important to me, but I thought it was a cool tie in because who knew? There's this crazy psychological experiment that is quite controversial, and there's been papers written about it that happened right there at Robbers Cave State Park way back in the day. Anyway, there's your little, you know, 
snippet of nothing that has to do with anything that you probably wanted to hear about for tonight's show. Anyway, guys, we've ran on for well over our hour. We've got more than enough here for an episode. I hope you guys enjoyed it. I hope that there wasn't too much history for you. I hope that it was just the right amount of interesting to uh, get you a little bit um, excited about possibly checking out Robbers Cave State Park because it is a state park where you can absolutely have a great weekend with yourself or your family. Anyway, guys, thanks for sticking around through the whole show. If you have and you enjoy what we're doing here, please, by all means, rate, review, and subscribe. That rating and review is the biggest thing. If you want to get in touch with me, mywaywardstory at gmail.com, I would love to hear from you guys. I absolutely love interacting with the people that listen to the show. So please, don't hesitate. Shoot me an email and I will get back to you. Um, For anything else that you might want to check out, waywardstories.com is the nexus for all things we do. And from there, you can find my Facebook, my Instagram, our Facebook page, our Facebook group, where not enough happens. If any of you are in the Facebook group, like post stuff if you want to. I just don't have time at the moment. Life's too busy with school and stuff. Get in there, get active, and like, I'd love to see stuff happening there. So do that if you'd like. Other than that, there's not a whole lot else going on. You guys keep up with my Instagram page. Keep an eye out over the next few weeks. I had a recent collaboration um, another paid collaboration for NWA Tourism, Northwest Arkansas Tourism, for a bunch of the museums in NWA, which was right up my alley, right in my field house. And I'm just finishing it up. I've got two articles left to write. All the pictures are edited and in the can. And that will be dropping over the next few weeks. So keep an eye out for that if you're interested. Um, I got a lot of stuff, y'all. I got a pretty good portfolio now, portfolio now between this podcast, and my Sherpa articles, and everything else to give you guys some great ideas to get yourselves outside, to get active, to get yourself engaged, to get your family engaged. And hopefully that is what you're using it for because that is why I'm doing it. Anyway, I have rambled on long enough. I hope to see you guys here again in a couple of weeks. And until we do, you guys get out there, go explore some state parks. Don't do any unethical psychological experiments on anyone you know. And remember to be good to each other. 